Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. This is Ian Marks, and I'm a writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode, I'm speaking with director of photography James Whitaker, whose previous credits include The Cooler and Running Scared for Wayne Kramer, Thank You for Smoking for Jason Reitman, the documentary Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, and second unit cinematography for Captain America Civil War. Most recently, he photographed the Amazon Studios series Patriot, which tells the story of John Tavner, a U.S. intelligence officer who goes undercover at a Midwestern industrial piping firm as part of an assignment to prevent Iran from achieving nuclear weapons capabilities. Late last year, Amazon Studios invited American cinematographer to visit the set of Patriot outside Chicago, and this year we followed up with what occurred just before the series premiered in full on the Amazon Prime streaming service. And now, on with the interview. Jim, I'm only about five episodes in and uh, really loving what I'm seeing so far. The tone is a lot of fun too, with the serious spy intrigue on the one hand and this very wry comedic attitude on the other. It's a tricky line to watch. I have to say, I've been kind of amazed through the whole process watching Steve uh, do this dance because, I mean, I don't know anybody who's done it quite like this either because it's, like you're saying, it's very difficult to write a serious line and then at the, you know, in the next second or the next beat have it have a comedic payoff. But the whole idea was for it to be sort of situationally comedic because that's the way this real spy world as it's been taught to us really is. So Steve wanted to have a sense of what it could really be like um, because it's not always, you know, like we see it on the big movies and what we read about where it sounds really serious. There's a lot of, you know, mishaps and missteps. And, and so the, our lead character, John sort of walks that line himself and he, he finds himself in one terrible situation after another. And it kind of leads to some comedy along the way. So, yeah, it's been interesting to watch. But it also opened it up photographically for us to be able to play tonally with, you know, lensing and framing and, you know, how would we want to present this to the audience so that it wasn't like a straight, you know, Bourne movie or, you know, Mission Impossible or a Bond film or something like that. Or, you know, we didn't want it to be a modern sort of comedy looking show for sure. How was the show pitched to you? Was it still in the conceptual phase or was it presented whole cloth? It was a quite an incredible process. I have to tell you, it was really cool. It was, you know, my agent sent me the script for it. Um, I knew who Steve Conrad was and, you know, within an hour or so I read the script and I called my agent. And I said, I sure hope I like this guy because um, this is great. This is great material. It's nothing like I've ever read before. Um, and so I sat down with Steve and we just started talking about what the possibilities were, you know, and it was, I think he was eager to push the form, you know, the cinematic form in a direction that would be fresh for audiences. And that was something that aligned us perfectly because that's exactly what I wanted to do. And in that, I found a great 
partner. I mean, we, we worked together sort of endlessly and tirelessly to discover what that could be. For example, like, you know, he told me early on when we read this stuff, you know, just sort of spewing ideas to each other about what we would do. You know, how can we make this show different for people? You know, in, in talking about the action, for example, like you, you mentioned the porn films, we didn't want it to be like a tentpole movie at all. We, in fact, wanted the opposite. So we looked at other films that along the way that might sort of inspire sort of a lower fi version of action. Um, and we came across great films and, and stuff to look at and talk about and stuff we looked at and talked about and threw away. Um, but at the end of the day, it was, it was exciting. And what we came across is whenever we did action, we preferred to do it in, in single long takes so that, you know, or, you know, with as few cuts as possible so that it felt believable that our character could be going through um, these things for real and that it wasn't, you know, being covered up with a thousand stuntmen and all that. We talked about the ways in which you and Steve Conrad wanted to take the show in a different direction. Where did that all begin? Well, you know, looking at the comedy side of it, you know, we decided we didn't want it to, you know, for sure didn't want it to be, you know, something that was bright and broadly lit. We wanted it to be a fairly dark and moody show. You know, we looked at a lot of 70s films and we looked at uh, photographers that present, presented things in a single frame, like Andrei Skursky. And we decided that, you know, typically we would follow the line of, you know, what, what is the simplest way to tell the story? And um, for us, it was often just, you know, three or four shots per scene. And, uh, but yet, you know, we would do things like emphasize things with slow push-ins when we needed it. And with regard to the look, I just wanted the lighting to be dramatic. And I wanted it to be dark without being overbearing. And then we got to play with the different looks between Milwaukee and Europe. In that world, we got to send that look the year of looking to something more different, something in the cyan world. We sort of pushed it toward green a little bit. I looked personally at Van Gogh's work. Van Gogh has sort of a green palette when he paints people's faces sometimes. You have more credits for feature films than you do for TV, it seems. Um, how big of a leap was it going from features to a series? Because you know you talk about shooting entire scenes in three or four shots, which is not normally how television series are done. Yeah. I mean, so basically when Steve and I got started, one of the things uh, he said to me is we started breaking down what didn't seem to work all the time in television for us. You know, there's a lot of great television out there, which is why I was excited to try it out because yeah, I do come from a feature film background. So one of the things we started talking about right away is where do, where do things kind of fall apart? And for me, often the thing that falls apart quickly is the lighting when you have to deal with juggling three or four cameras. Some people do it well, some people don't. So we really approached our show as a single camera shoot, even though we carried, you know, three Alexas with us or whatever. We really, 90% of the time, were a single camera shoot and we would do, you know, our wide and we move in. And we would just be able to deal with making the lighting sort of uh, work for each situation. And um, that helped right away. With regard to Amazon, they were supportive from the beginning of whatever Steve was going to go for. And I have to say they were kind of great. And I think, I think Steve would say that they were a great partner for him. Were you allowed to choose your own camera systems? And I ask because I hear that streaming companies tend to impose these technical standards for meeting certain specifications. 
Yeah, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. That, um, that was a little tricky at the very beginning because a lot of these streaming places want to have 4K deliverable or 4K capture. And at the very beginning, I was told it would have to be 4K capture camera. So it would have to be, you know, in our world, it would have to be a Sony or it would have to be a Red or something like that. And I pushed back a little bit because I didn't understand. I don't really understand that whole logic. I feel like that dictation is kind of happening um, sort of naively, you know what I'm saying? So as it turned out, with Amazon only has a 4K deliverable uh, requirement. So you're allowed to shoot 3.2K and then up res to 4K and deliver it that way. And that opens things up to being able to use the Alexa. Uh, and, you know, the Alexa now has a 4K UHD, so you can do 4K UHD, but for other streaming people, that's not uh, quite enough. But it was cool because it was, they allowed me to shoot a test. We shot a quick test, you know, Alexa versus Red. And they saw what I was liking and they were on board pretty quickly. And it really wasn't a huge sell, but I'm happy it went down that way. How important is it to you to have control over the type of camera that you use? You know, it hasn't come up yet where that's been in the way. I have to say that I'm an endless lover of the Alexa with the digital world, for sure. Um, I, I feel like that chip has just done such wonders. You know, I feel like Ari really nailed it, you know, with the Alexa chip. And um, this the sensor that, you know, is able to capture the skin tones and also deal with the highlights in a really filmic way. And, and yet the camera also puts on a beautiful, almost filmic, quality sort of grain to the image and you know i've shot many of the other systems uh i've had success with them as well it's just sort of what fits well to me but as far as i have yet to have a project say okay you have to shoot on this camera i think whatever's right for the project at the end of the day so again if it's you know if i'm asked by another service to shoot something for them and they want to shoot on a different camera system and this, you know, if the story speaks to me and I want to do the project, I'm going to do the project for sure. It seems that with digital technology reaching a kind of plateau that all cameras being equal in a way, it would be more important to set standards for the kinds of, let's say, lenses one uses. Yeah, I mean, you know, the glass is always a big uh, decision for me when I'm going to shoot a show. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if we are at a plateau yet. I mean, maybe we are, but I, th I think also all these new specifications that are coming out that sort of take me by surprise at times. It, it even happened with the release of Patriot. Um, there's a new standard coming out, Rec 2020. And that's, see what I'm saying? It's like right now, I think, you know, if you go to the local store down the street, every TV is HDR and that's what they're selling. But I'm not sure that everybody's ready for that to be put out there. And certainly I know the colorists in the color timing rooms are like, man, how do we deal with this? They're telling us that we should be coloring with our windows drawn open so that it's bright daylight, even for dark scenes. And, you know, yet it's really going to affect how the viewers watch stuff inside their house. So at the same time, we're dealing with camera systems that are coming out with larger sensors. Um, and so new glass is being made for those. I think the technology is still changing quite rapidly, actually. It feels like a little bit of a plateau, but... I should clarify. I meant as far as resolution is concerned. Right. For our show, you know, we shot with Cook S4 primes that I love. The thing I love about Cook lenses is that they have sort of a filmic fall-off on the corners, and they feel soft and nice in all the right ways, and I think they go really well with the Alexa. And we shot with 
on new zooms. We also shot for, you know, episodes two through eight, I guess it was, we shot entire opening sequences of Patriot with cow anamorphic lenses. And, and those are just wild lenses, massively distorted and weird in all the right ways for Patriot. Yeah, and then throughout the series, we also shot with some super ball tires along the way for some flashbacks. So we kind of mixed it up a bit. Could you explain uh, from your perspective the aesthetic difference between the Kawas and the Baltars? All the openings were anamorphic, and that was just a choice. We wanted it to feel more cinematic and different. I really wanted it to feel different than the rest of the show. Um, and so those were the Kawa anamorphics. The flashbacks in the center of the show, man, I remember there being some that are 235, but if, if they were 235, then they were spherical lenses. You know, some of the trick, I think, with our show is the storyline weaves back and forth between multiple episodes. I mean, some episodes from two are also in three or from two are also in four. And so they kind of weave back and forth constantly. So we kind of needed to delineate between the looks of the different periods and different, you know, whether or not you're in Europe or United States. Uh, I don't always like to do that, but it certainly seemed necessary this time only because I think it was, you know, it's borderline... I don't want to say it's a borderline confusing story already, but I'm just saying you have to be on your toes already to follow the story. And I think, you know, those visual things that we could do to help keep the audience on target, I think were designed to be helpful to them. What other camera and lighting techniques did you use to differentiate the different time periods and, and different places? Uh, just as, as an example, I noticed that uh, in the scene set in Amsterdam, you like to use that soft Northern light, that kind of Vermeer style of window light. And uh, uh, I was wondering if that was intentional. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm super flattered that you mentioned that, but uh, that you tied that to Vermeer. But um, but yeah, I mean, that's, those were sort of some of the influences that you know have always touched me along my career, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessarily intentional. Like, here's Amsterdam, so we're going to do this kind of light. But it was it was really, you know, we just wanted that sort of soft ambient like you're saying, a little bit more painterly was what we were going for, for both the Amsterdam stuff and also the Luxembourg stuff where they're in all the hotel rooms for sort of endless hours spending time in those hotel rooms. We were hoping for, you know, a little bit of a nod to those guys, you know? And um, yeah, so we did, you know, large bounces outside of the windows to create a really soft quality of light and formal framings that felt like paintings is what we were going for. And hopefully if we achieve even part of that, then it makes me happy. There's a beautiful opening scene in episode two where John's friend and former roommate, I guess, in Amsterdam is trying to sell a kayak. Uh, and apart from the aspect ratio, it's just shot in this very artful, different way uh, than the rest of the show. Uh, did you find that these sequences lent themselves to uh, a more artful approach? I think so. I mean, they were kind of meant to be little short films that gave us a little bit of story, a little bit of backstory to each of these characters. And that allowed us to form a new world completely. And that was fun for us, for sure. And we, you know, every time we knew we were shooting one of those shots for a sequence, because, you know, it's not like we shot, you know, that sequence in one half of a day or day or whatever, you know, it was spread out over months sometimes because, you know, some of it was in 
Europe. Some of it was in Chicago, where we shot most of the series. But every time we would get to one of those intros for that episode that you're talking about, or some of the others as well, we'd get pretty excited, you know, put the anamorphic lens on and and get to start to play with uh, light and paint, paint what's going on. It was it was really fun. And the art direction too. Judy Reed did a phenomenal job with the sets and creating this world for us. When I visited the set last year, you were shooting in the lobby of an old theater in Peoria uh, that was meant to be the lobby of a hotel in Luxembourg. Yeah, it was Peoria, wasn't it? Or was it Joliet? No, it was Peoria. Um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. It was really this like theater that was from the, the time of, uh, you know, the real criminals of Chicago. And they would go to Peoria to, to get out of the city and go to this theater. And The series is set in all of these different places, Milwaukee, Chicago, Luxembourg, Washington, D.C. How much of it did you actually shoot on location? Well, the pilot episode, which was shot in 2015, was shot in Montreal, the whole thing from beginning to end. And then when we got to series, we basically set ourselves in Chicago for about four or five months. So we built all of our interiors there that would work for Europe as well. So most of the uh, European interiors are in Chicago and also practical locations that were for Europe. But one of our great spoofs is that we went up to Milwaukee to fake a Luxembourg hotel exterior. And we found a hotel up there that worked quite well for Luxembourg, so that was kind of fun. And then, yeah, we spent, at the end of the series, we went to Prague for a month to do all of our European exteriors and to sort of tie it all up. We kind of touched upon this already, but... Uh, did these different places, these different locations, lend themselves to different looks? Well, Milwaukee has a little bit of a cooler, browner, tonal world to it. We went with sort of a little bit more grit in there and the look of it. And that's probably what defines it most, as well as, you know, the exteriors are large and industrial, so that helps a lot. You know, that the locations help set us separately a lot, too. And Europe, like we spoke about before, we, we push things a little bit toward cyan and the look, little yellow, little cyan, and, you know, the exterior locations there are undeniably Europe. So it really wasn't that difficult. We, we really had very few, few rules with regard to this stuff. You know, my DIT, Ryan Kunkelman, and I developed a couple of LUTs early on and kind of stuck to those um, for the show, you know, for Europe and, and U.S. They were kind of different. D.C. has almost a bluer vibe when we, when we do it, when we go to it, a little colder. One character describes Milwaukee as an icebox uh, where, where the sun never shines. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we played a lot with light and shadow, like trying to create the right vibe for the right scene. And, you know, the scene you're talking about when John's in the box at the beginning of the show, he basically is stuck there and he's meant to be listening to the same song and all. He's, he's getting tortured, so he's going to be listening to the same song over and over again for months. We wanted it to be harsh and intense, and we, we created almost unreal shafts of light going through his box using sources to create that sort of dramatic pain that he's in. But it's also playful. You know, it's a, a lot of this is also nodding to other stuff along the way that we've been exposed to. We're audience members as well as cinematographers. We're sponges as well. And so even though that wasn't a direct reference to a specific film, I'm sure it was at some point in my memory. Like you were saying before. Oh yeah, and, you know, in the in the hotel room, in the Luxembourg hotel room, for example, that was the idea, was to create, you know, dramatic lighting and using silhouette. The idea was to silhouette people against windows as much as possible and to go as dark as possible in there. 
again, nodding to painters of past and other cinematographers who are so great at it, like, you know, Gordon Willis and the people we always talk about, you know, Roger Deakins. I, I interviewed Barry Sonnenfeld a while ago, and he said that when, when he wants a comedic effect, he always goes with a wider lens, like a, a 21 millimeter, I think it was. And it uh, got me wondering that if, if you found that certain focal lengths or types of framing lent themselves better to the uh, comedic and dramatic aspects of uh, your show. Yeah, I mean, when we were trying to play up the real drama of the moments, we tended to live a little bit more in, like, say, for example, if we had two or three characters in the scene, we would tend to at least start the scene in traditional sort of overs, you know, and that allows you to sort of block part of the frame with the shoulder and create some nice negative space for the character to live in. And that's how the scene would at least start, whether or not we would go in for other coverage or not, just depending on scene. With When we were doing stuff that was more comedic, you tend not to go as traditional over the shoulder. You tend to get in there real close on a wider lens. And wider lens, it wasn't 21 millimeters for us, but it often was, you know, like a 35 or a 40 for a close-up. The other thing that we really enjoyed doing was, you know, some of these actors were so wonderful, you know, like his Macmillan sort of counterpart who wants to be a spy. This guy, Dennis McLaren, is such an amazing physical actor that we oftentimes would just set a frame and let these guys do what they do. And that oftentimes is more effective than trying to push the comedy with the photography. So the only real rules we had were when we photographed certain characters, like the Luxembourgian detective Agatha, played by Elliot Ophium, is... When we dealt with her, for example, this is just one example, we, we went with extremely formal framing and it sort of played to her sort of hard edge. And with our lead character, the trick with him was always to get the camera close on a wider lens, doing 40 mil close-ups as opposed to 75 millimeter close-ups or 100 millimeter close-ups because we really wanted to feel like we were inside of his head. One of the things that really stands out about Patriot uh, for me, anyway, that is that it's got a lot of these great character actors, and yeah, sure, you know, yeah. which gives you a lot of these great character moments. I really love watching uh, the Dennis character do his thing, and uh, Kurtwood Smith's uh, Leslie Claret, even in the even in the smallest moments, like that scene where Leslie and John are at the urinals having a conversation about parking spaces, and Smith just does this move with the flush handle that kind of puts a full stop on the discussion. And I, I just thought that was so great. Oh man. He's a master. Yeah. He's a master. I, ho I hope he gets everything that he deserves for this role. Uh, I want to bring up another moment uh, where Leslie is demonstrating how to pitch uh, these potential clients on a piping job. And he's just rolling through this really complicated technical jargon and you get it all in this one long push in and, I guess the question I'm getting at is how does the work of these incredibly talented actors also like Terry O'Quinn and Gil Bellows affect your work as a cinematographer? You, I think you've touched on a couple of things here that I'm glad you brought these up because one of the things that we established early in the pilot was that we were going to try to pull off very difficult single shot takes. And there's a shot in the pilot where John goes up a fire escape and he you know, looks in a window, he sees a guy sitting on the couch, and then he leaves our frame, and the frame just stays there as we watch this guy on the couch. Meanwhile, John's gone, broken in the, through the back door. He comes in the apartment, and he goes up to the guy, and he takes his bag of money, and then all of a sudden, all the five or six brothers that are hiding in other rooms sort of 
collapse on him. So we, that was sort of like, you know, after we did that, it was like, okay, now we can just, we can have a lot of fun going for a lot of these winners. And the one you're talking about where Kurtwood Smith is giving this long speech, which is, you know, basically invented jargon by Steve Conrad, half C sprats and nickel splits. You know, I, I can't even do it, but it's, it's great dialogue. It's amazing dialogue. And it's, you know, the great thing that's so liberating about having these incredible actors and really all of them were, you know, we could count on to be able to just throw, you know, on a day and just say, listen, we're not going to do coverage on this scene. We're going to do just a single shot. And so you guys, we really need you to have all everything airtight. And it was just like, it was never an issue. That shot you're talking about where he's giving the speech, you know, that was really fun. We just kind of sat back with a wide camera and did a really long push in during the take that sort of reveals John at the end of it, like, oh shit, I'm going to have to pull that off. And it's not like there was any hidden coverage. We didn't have to cut four or five times to, you know, hide a performance issue or something like that. And, you know, when the actors walk onto the set and they've got their lines and their performances down, and then suddenly the pressure's on you to do justice to their diligence. Absolutely, yeah. And vice versa, it goes both ways because, you know, he, they're, they're also counting on us to not blow it take after take, you know, because our, our end of the work, the camera move and the lighting and, and the way everything falls into place isn't easy either. And so, but I had like an incredible crew with us that we could count on focus and, you know, Jody Miller was my A camera operator and sort of right hand man in this the design of the look. He, you know, just nails it every time. And so the actors can count on us as much as we can count on them. And I imagine your focus pullers as well. Yeah, George Sanchez did A camera, and Kay Moss was the B camera first. She was incredible as well. We had Chris Rahano in B camera um, when we did use a B camera, and uh, these people just delivered. And, you know, Chris, we on occasion could send off to do additional photography and could just go off and shoot some establishing bits for us. While we're on the subject of the crew, I'd also like to thank a couple more people. Go for it, please. <laughs> My key grip was Ed Titus. Uh, this guy, Chicago local, incredible. Uh, him and his team are unbelievable. And Jeremy Long was my gaffer also from Chicago. These guys just absolutely killed it for me. Uh, another person for sure I need to thank is uh, Nicole Whitaker, who's my wife and fellow cinematographer of this show. I stepped off to do other tasks for a couple episodes. Um, uh, and she took over and shot episode seven and eight. And I think they cut in seamlessly to the series and she showed up with everything that Steve needed to happen. So for that, and also for being my wife, cause she's amazing. And also a uh, Keslo camera for providing us with the gear. So Nicole and you were basically the two cinematographers on the show. Yeah. So Nicole shot seven and eight while I directed an episode is what, what happened, um, which was a real pleasure for me. And it was really amazing that Amazon and Charlie Gogolak were so supportive of the idea and all of our producers, really. And so during that time, I stepped out to start prepping the episode, which was the eighth episode. And Nicole stepped in and she did a brilliant job. And she was up to speed on all the work that you'd been doing? Yeah, the thing, with Nicole, the thing that's amazing about Nicole, I mean, for one thing, she's her own established cinematographer, but there's nobody that she has to listen to more about cinematography than me. So she knows exactly what I think about what we're doing all the time. She knows what my process is. You know, back in the early days when I was doing a lot of movies, she shot fucking unit for me on probably seven or eight films. 
now she's too expensive. I can't get her, you know, all that. But um, <laughs> she's got her own career and she's doing her own narrative projects and her own feature films now. But uh, it has been a really kind of amazing collaboration, husband and wife, two cinematographers. Speaking of creative collaborations, let's talk about your collaboration with Steve Conrad. Uh, we met uh, when I was on set in Chicago and you told me that he has this expectation of you uh, to bring something to the table creatively. Um, he wasn't just looking for someone to take orders. That goes both ways. I, I was really looking for a new director that I could develop a long relationship with. I wasn't really looking for a job. I didn't really need a job at the time. So I was really looking for somebody, you know, yes, he is a boss, but he's also like a co-creator. And he was just the most generous person ever, you know, whatever your ideas on how to do something, he was always open to them. And it wasn't like I was trying to find new ideas that hadn't, you know, that were just so left field, you know what I mean? Like, so when I presented these ideas of how we do a shot or, you know, say, for example, when we were walking around in Milwaukee trying to figure out how to do that sequence I was talking about earlier when he was breaking into the apartment and stealing the bag of money and he gets clobbered by all the brothers. You know, that was just, you know, us just talking and talking and talking about like, you know, what are the different ways that we could do this scene? So he was constantly looking for me to bring something new and all of us to bring something to the table. Was there much variation between the script and what ended up on screen? You know, honestly, that there was a plan and Steve sort of stuck to it. You know, obviously there was magic as there always is kind of developed and decided on the day, certainly with camera and blocking, but with regard to performance and what was on the page, there wasn't a lot of improvising of rewriting or he kind of wanted everybody to kind of stick to the plans in a good way. One of the things that struck me as I got deeper into the series was this uh, recurring theme of, of duality. You have the two different looks for the intros in the series and you have the characters all leading double lives and not just the spies, even these sort of outwardly dull company men have kind of rich inner lives. And it made me wonder how deeply that impacts your creative decisions? Well, I think, you know, visually, we didn't want to point to those things, you know, it's, I know what you're saying. I think it's, um, yeah, it's part of the genius of the, the writing, but it's not something we cinematically wanted to point to. Certainly John, when he's in his world where he's in this mundane sort of piping world, or even when he's in his apartment, his home where things are more mundane and flat and a little brighter lighting wise. And then things do get shadowy for him as he's doing some of the spy work. But I think those are more situational than a real intention to create those things. And as far as, you know, the creators, I'm not sure. It's certainly not something I remember talking about a whole lot. You know, a lot of these characters are left alone and to fend for themselves. And they're all just kind of looking for happiness, right? So if Patriot does get renewed for a second season, do you think you'll keep doing things the way you've been doing them? Or do you want to try and take your approach to a different level? I think... If there's another season and if I'm lucky enough to be involved, you know, there's room for growth for where this goes visually as well as I'm sure the stories can grow in different directions knowing Steve. So we'll see what the words say on the page because that's what dictates what we do, right? But I think, you know, there's some, some areas that I'd like to play in a little bit. Well, I hope it does get a second season because I'd love to see what happens next. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jim, for taking the time to talk to us about your work on Patriot. Absolutely, and thanks so much. It was really, really great pleasure.
That was cinematographer James Whitaker talking about his work on the Amazon Studios series Patriot. Patriot is filmed in the 240 to 1 and 178 to 1 aspect ratios with the Airy Alexa and Cook S4 Baltar and Kawa lenses. This is Ian Marks, and thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography. Thank you.